Okay, if you have a Bible with you, if you want to turn to the book of Daniel and chapter 4, if you don't have a Bible with you, don't worry, the words will appear as if by magic on the screen behind me in a moment or two. Um, You may remember a few weeks ago when we were in Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and uh, Daniel uh, is able to interpret that dream and tell the king what's going to happen. And Daniel chapter 4 is a very similar kind of story for that. In the same way, the the king has another dream and again comes to Daniel to ask for the interpretation. Uh, And that's where we're going to pick up the story today from verse 19. We're going to read the passage in three separate chunks. So we're going to start with Verse 19 to 27. It says, Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, I think that's the official pronunciation of the Babylonian, uh, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord... May the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, this was the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had of this mighty tree. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. And let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts of the fields." Till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. You shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will. And it was the command, and it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. 
Let me pray. Father, we want to come to you this morning with open hearts, ready to receive your word to us. We do pray, we ask Holy Spirit that you be at work deep within us this morning to change us, guide us, and lead us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We've been working through this series over the last few weeks from the book of Daniel, uh, particularly talking about the theme of resilience, how often in a, a society, a culture, a city, which can often feel opposed against what we believe that to live out a faithful Christian life takes a resilience those of us being filled with the Holy Spirit because of what Jesus has done in us, we're able to be resilient and hold on to what we believe the Bible teaches and what we believe Jesus has for us in our city. And so far, I guess a lot of what we've been talking about has perhaps been a little bit more conceptual, a little bit more kind of out here, whereas today the story comes much more deep into our hearts. Last week we were talking about this great idol that Nebuchadnezzar builds and how in the world around us we have this great idol of self, of how the whole of our existence is driven by this great idol that is pervasive over all of our culture that to get the most out of life we need to pursue our own dreams and desires, our own plans and purposes to build everything around what we want and what will make us happy. And this idol that's all around us, it's like a great pressure that you can feel to live a certain way, to do certain things. And what pressure does is it squashes things. That's how coal in the earth or even diamonds are formed, by pressure. The pressure of the earth crushing everything down until something is formed from it. And what will be formed in your soul if you let this idol of self press down upon you? What will form in your heart is pride. That's what this story is about. It's about how pride is formed within us. And that seed of pride in your heart, what will grow out of that will be a tree of self-sufficiency. That you believe that everything you need for your own satisfaction, for your own pleasure, you can provide from within yourself. That's, that's what we're told all the time, that we just need to look and search deep within ourselves for the answers, for the pleasure we need. That everything around us, even all our, the, our relationships around us, are just tools that we can use to unlock the potential within ourselves, to unlock the freedom, the desires that's within ourselves. That's how we live, as very self-sufficient beings. And that's what happens with King Nebuchadnezzar here. He has this dream of this great tree 
symbolizing himself. And in the religious beliefs of the time, how the Babylonians would have believed, this idea of a great cosmic tree over all the earth would have been a familiar picture to them. A tree of, from Nebuchadnezzar himself, his own sufficiency, not just for himself, but for his whole kingdom. That everything they needed could come from himself, from his own power, his own authority. It's pride. It's pride. This is one of the great curses of our age, is this prideful idea of self-sufficiency. It's, um, in many ways, it's a, it's a stronghold over our society that we can get what we need from within ourselves. There are lots of strongholds in our society. Things like even um, efficiency, <laughs> particularly in the Western world, we like to be efficient. And even as Christians, we see that as a value but actually the biblical value behind it is fruitfulness. And yet we have molded it into this hard efficiency or perfectionism. We like everything to be perfect, everything to work like clockwork, everything to be on time. Whereas actually what God requires of us is, what he asks for us is faithfulness. And we've taken this idea that we're made in the image of God and he's given us dominion over his earth. And that we can provide for ourselves and provide for others. But we've warped it and we've changed it into this horrible, prideful idea of self-sufficiency. That we can find everything we need within ourselves. It's pride. It's pride. We're essentially saying, I don't need God. What? I need, I can, I can source that myself. That's really what pride is. That's essentially what, what it is to be an atheist, is to be proud. Sorry if you're here today and you're not a believer in Jesus. Perhaps you would describe yourself as an atheist. But biblically speaking, you've, if you've taken that position, you've put yourself in opposition to God and you've said, I don't need God. It's what pride is. Often as Christians, we can live in, a, in almost a bit like, bit like a, an atheist when we don't pray. Because even in not praying, we're essentially saying, I don't need God. This situation that I, I, just, just, I can't seem to get past I, don't, I won't pray about it, instead I'll worry about it, because that will fix it. It's just pride. It's just a practical atheism in a way. And we see Nebuchadnezzar here in this dream, and Daniel tenderly confronts him and gives him this interpretation and says, Something's going to come that's going to chop you down. There's a warning here of when we live lives full of pride and arrogance that we should 
be careful. So let's read what happens next in the story, the next six verses. It says, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. You shall be driven from among men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. Seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like birds. Clause. That's what pride can do in our life. It says in, in the Proverbs that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. The way that we often use that verse in our regular language is that pride comes before a fall. So let's look at the pride that the king has here. First of all, the king, I don't know if you noticed in that story, the king looks down. He's up on the roof of his palace, looking over all of his kingdom, looking down on what he's built. That's what pride does. It looks down. It takes the high horse, so to speak, and looks down on the world, on the world around it. C.S. Lewis said, a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. When you're looking down, you can't see what's up. When you're filled with pride, looking down, you lose sight of God, of who he is, of what he's done, what he's doing in your life. Well, next we'll see that the king, he, he boasts. He boasts about the things that he's built with his mighty power. And interestingly, we didn't read the verse, but at the start of the chapter, and indeed at the end of the previous chapter, we find the same king seemingly making proclamations of, of worship. In verse 3, he says, how great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. He's talking about God. And yet, somehow, he hasn't quite got it. He goes from, on one hand, saying, oh, look at the mighty power of God, to saying, look at my mighty power. Look what I've built, look what I've created. 
And we often do the same ourselves. We like to take credit for things, things that God's done in our life, things that other people have done. We like to boast and to brag, to feel a certain pleasure for that. And all this pride, it, it puffs us up. It makes us feel big and important. And often, really, I guess in many ways, the idea of repentance, that is a turning back from our sin and turning to God. Repentance, in some ways, is about resizing your life. Where we've made ourselves big and proud and bold. It's remembering who we really are. It says in Isaiah 40, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Have you ever had a bucket of water and you empty it out and you shake it out? But there's always still a drip in the bottom that you can never quite get rid of. But you don't really worry about it. Just put the bucket down. It's what the nations are to God. Just a drop in the bucket. And yet we can see ourselves as having such mighty positions. In Psalm 8, it says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? Nobody knows quite for sure, but they think that in our galaxy alone, there are 100 billion stars, of which our sun is just one. And in the whole universe, there are 100 billion galaxies. So that means there are 10 billion trillion stars. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> and yet, we think of ourselves with such big scale, and sometimes we just need to remember who we really are in the eyes of God. That if a nation is just a drop in the bucket, just a fleck of dust, what, what are we? And yet, God is, as it says in that psalm, he's mindful of us, that he knows us, that he's numbered every hair on your head, that he knows you intimately, that he's working in you and in us as his people, his masterpiece, his work of art that he's painting for the whole world to see. And I'm sure, I guess, perhaps you can think of people that fit this description of pride, who they like to look down on people that they're boastful, that they're arrogant. And often in our society, we, we like to take the, the position of the victim and look up at those evil oppressors, you know, the white male patriarchy, proud, arrogant people causing so much pain and destruction. And yet, pride isn't just about being puffed up. There's another form of pride as well. 
Because if pride is just turning away from God to find the satisfaction and sufficiency in yourself, then things like self-pity, well, that's pride as well. Because you're not coming to God to find the answer. But we Obviously, the, the opposite of pride is humility. But humility isn't just thinking that you're rubbish. Actually, humility is just thinking less about yourself, not thinking that you're less of something, but thinking more about God. It's about fixing your eyes on him. So self-pity can be pride. Worry, fear, anxiety, they can all be forms of pride. Where rather than take all the fears and worries, the things that distress us, the things that keep us up at night, rather than bringing them to God, we just try and fix them ourselves. It's just pride. And what happens to Nebuchadnezzar? Well, this pride causes a great fall to take place. And that's what pride will do in your life. As it says in that proverb, that pride goes before destruction. And there are certain things that pride will do. First of all, pride will make you not listen. Pride will block up your ears, will switch you off. Nebuchadnezzar is warned and a whole year passes but he doesn't listen. He's put himself in opposition to God. Despite this warning, despite even Daniel having a track record of interpreting his dreams correctly, he still doesn't listen. And that's what pride will do in your life. It'll make you not listen when friends, family members try and gently correct you and encourage you try and point out something in your life which isn't godly, you just don't listen and just block up your ears. And perhaps, perhaps the sign that you're refusing to listen is right now as I'm saying this, you're thinking of someone else. You're thinking, ah, I know someone that's like that. I know a proud person who's not listening. Maybe God's trying to pinpoint something in your life an area where you've, in your pride, over a certain area of your life, you're not listening to God. That when Gavin stood up earlier and talked about money, you just switched off. You didn't want to listen. It's just pride. Not, you don't want anyone to tell you what to do with your money. It's pride. Another thing that, that happens in this story is that Nebuchadnezzar, he, he becomes like the beasts of the field. He becomes like an animal. And that's what pride will do in your life. It will dehumanize you. Because we, as human beings, made in the image of God, made to live out his image. But when we start trying to live out our own image instead, then we actually begin to lose our humanity. That's what pride will do. It will take your humanity away, little by little. And what that does is it will, it will isolate you. Your animals aren't 
really very relational beings. They don't get married. They don't have the same relationships that humans do. And pride will, little by little, will isolate you. Partly because, I don't know about you, I don't like to be around proud people. People that are always boast and arrogant. We don't like to be around people like that. And your pride will become like a beacon which will drive people away. It will isolate you from relationship. And it will, it will mean that you won't want to show any weakness. You won't want people to see your flaws. You'll always want to give off the Instagram version of your life to people around you, the picture-perfect version of your life. And when you don't let people in, when you don't show weakness, when all you give off is a front of pride, you build up a wall between you and other people. That's what sin does. It's antisocial. It drives relationships away. It will isolate you the same way that Nebuchadnezzar was driven from among men. Pride will drive you away from people. The next thing that happens is it will take away your reason Again, we find in this passage later on that it says that Nebuchadnezzar's reason returned to him, and pride will steal your reason away. Because again, as you become like an animal, animals can't have reason. They don't think rationally. They don't rationalize situations. And pride will do the same. Pride will work. It will tell you that you're a king of all that you survey, that you're a god, that all you need is yourself. Which when you sit back and you consider it, you realize what nonsense that is. It's just unreasonable, it doesn't make any sense. But yet we can begin to believe our own propaganda. We can believe our own PR. We lose any sense of reason. And of course, also, pride will, as it does with Nebuchadnezzar, it will dethrone and it will, little by little, work a destruction in your life. Perhaps we use the phrase, pride goes before a fall, because we don't want to say what the proverb really says, pride goes before destruction. If you look through history, you'll find all sorts of kings and rulers and military leaders who think an awful lot of themselves and take their armies and their nations into situations where they are obliterated because they're driven by pride, because they think they're invincible and it destroys them, destroys their reputations. And that's what pride will do in you. It will destroy your reputation and you won't realize it until it's too late because you've become so proud because you're living out your own propaganda. You won't realize what you actually look like to the world around you. And ultimately what happens is this pride leads to this deep shame that comes 
You know, imagine how Nebuchadnezzar must have felt. We'll read the next part of the story in a moment, where it says his reason returned to him, and he would have realized what he'd become. This beast of the field, his nails like claws, seven years of being driven from among men, of losing his kingdom, his power, everything he ruled over. Imagine the deep shame he must have felt. And maybe you know that sense of deep shame when you just realize, oh, I've just been so proud. I've got myself in this situation and, and I've, you know, I've not told anyone what I'm really like. And then suddenly you're exposed. People see a glimpse of what you're really like, of what's really going on in your heart. And you've built up this proud wall so that no one sees it, and then suddenly it's exposed. People see what you're really like. That sense of shame, embarrassment, sense of defeat in your heart. Let's read the next part of the story from verse 34. It says, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, I lifted my eyes to heaven. My reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will amongst the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me and I was established in my kingdom. And still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his words are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. He's able to humble those who walk in pride. See, what happens in this story is you get this beautiful picture of God's grace and his restoration. That's what the grace of God can do in your life. It can restore what's been broken, what's been damaged, destroyed. It can fix and mend and restore those things. I think perhaps the key here is what King Nebuchadnezzar does is rather than looking down, he lifts his eyes to heaven. He takes his eyes off of himself and his own problems and he fixes his eyes on his saviour, the king of kings. And that's, that's why we we worship every Sunday. Why we start every service and finish every service by singing. It might seem a bit weird to you, people singing, people raising their hands in the air, closing their eyes, 
might look a bit odd, but it's because we want to do exactly this. Our worship is it's an act of defiance against the world around us that tells us all the time to fix our eyes on ourselves. As we worship, we say, I want to fix my eyes on him. It's why we don't sing lots of songs that are me-centered, all about me. We sing lots of songs that are all about Jesus, all about who he is and what he's done. It's why when we preach, I try not to give you lots of like life lessons and tips. It's not about lessons in morality. What we try and do is say, look at Jesus. Look at him, what he's done for you. His incredible grace that comes when we realize that we're all in need of God's mercy, that all of us in some way are proud, all of us in some way have fallen short because of that pride. And we all need God's mercy to come to us and restore us. And what you get in this story is this beautiful, it's almost like a redemptive shame. We thought shame to us is just a deep sense of embarrassment or guilt, that we just want to get rid of it, which is anything other than that feeling of shame. But yet, shame can actually be a, a good thing in your life because it can help you acknowledge the fact that, that you're broken and that you need a savior. That shame can cause you to think, oh, I need him. I need God, I can't do this life on my own. We recognize our sin and rebellion and we're exposed before God when we realize that he sees us exactly as we are, and every now and again we get a glimpse of who we really are. And we can feel shame, but what Jesus does is in those moments he comes and reminds us that actually on the cross that he bore our guilt and shame. He took it upon him, himself so that we could walk in freedom from it. That when we really see the depths of our sin and rebellion and we feel disgusted and embarrassed, the greater, more powerful knowledge is that reminds us of the depths of his mercy. That his love for us is greater than all of that. Because what happens in this story is remarkable. It says that for King Nebuchadnezzar, his kingdom was restored to him. <laughs> Despite the fact that he'd been living like an animal for seven years. If it's just a day, a few hours, a week, a month maybe, you might be able to get away with it. His advisors, you know, his press officer could, could, could have said, well... He's just on a sabbatical. He's just taking a break. He's just not around for a while. 
But this length of time, his whole kingdom would have known what was going on. Especially, you can find this account in, 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 in history, not in the Bible, in, in secular history. There's a story of where this happens. Seven years, this king of Babylon lived as a beast. He went mad. And yet his kingdom is restored to him. And it says more greatness was added. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. Why would that happen? And I guess the only answer is because that's what God does. It doesn't, doesn't make any sense to us. And that's what our shame will say. It will say, you can't let people see what you're really like because they won't forgive you. But yet, what his grace does is in those moments of weakness and vulnerability, he will add to you more greatness. I don't mean greatness as in that we look greater, but more of his greatness in us. His grace and mercy will flood into your heart and will rebuild you from the inside out. Let me pray. Jesus, I thank you that, as it says in Philippians, that you're a wonderful, humble servant king. Jesus, you lived a life with no pride or arrogance. You lived a life of perfect humility. You lived a life that we could never lead to win for us a great victory that we could never win. I just pray for everyone here that's feeling suddenly aware of their pride, is feeling a deep sense of shame, that they would know your grace just flood into them. As we, we were, some of us were praying before the service died. And Gavin, who was praying with us, was reminded of the word disqualify. And I just want to pray for anyone here that feels disqualified because of what they've done. They're just lost in a deep sense of shame that they would know your grace your power to forgive and restore and rebuild. Thank you that you're a good God, a humble King. We pray, Holy Spirit, you would work in us to help us to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.